Hello and welcome to the Conscious Consulting Podcast, where we will introduce you to the Conscious Consulting philosophy. Together with our senior advisors from all around the world, we blend the deep knowing of wisdom traditions, technology, modern science and business, and show you how to transform this wisdom into impact in your daily life as a consultant, leader or entrepreneur. Welcome to the CCG community. I am very grateful to share a magical conversation with you. Today's guest is our senior advisor, Shantina Augusto Sabadini, a man so profound it's difficult to describe him in a few sentences. Shantina is a well-known quantum physicist, teacher of the Taoism and the I Ching, as well as the director of the Paris Center in Italy. But to become all of the above requires a deep journey of unbecoming and becoming. And Shantina takes us on this journey today. He shares how he contributed to the field of quantum physics, helped to discover the first black hole, went through a spiritual awakening and discovered ancient wisdom. He also shares the story of how Osho gave him the name Shantina. Shantina also adds his view on the current situation, his take on consulting and answers the question of what's the secret to a good life for him. So make yourself a cup of tea, take a deep breath and enjoy this incredible life story on the Conscious Consulting Podcast. Dear Shantina, thank you so much for taking the time to come to the Conscious Consulting Podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you, Lisa. I'm also happy to be here with you. You're very kind to interview me. Yeah, you have an incredible life story. This is where I want to dive deep and to answer the question, what brought you here today and how you became one of the senior advisors at the Conscious Consulting Group. But First, before we start, I wonder, you experienced a lot of difficult times in your life. Like you were born during the World War II in Italy. You lived in the U.S. during the Vietnam War. You experienced the New Age, global recession, flower power movement, and also the rise of the digitalization. So I wonder, how do you feel about this current situation and the crisis we're living in? I think we are at a very... Uh, important, interesting, and dangerous time altogether. Um, one way of summarizing what's going on around us, which I often use, is in terms of abstraction. It's like the triumph of abstraction, uh, in which like alive, personal, uh, human interaction gets covered over by virtual communication, which is wonderful in some way because we are using it right now. We couldn't do this without it. But there's, there's an unbalance in our culture, in our society, in which like, the formal, the abstract is prevailing over the concrete human experience. So I think it's a big challenge we're facing. And this COVID situation we're in is shaking things up deeply. And there's no telling yet where, how it will settle, in which direction. But it could be, it could be a, an opportunity and could also be a disaster. <laughs> where do you see the, the chance in? I see it in, in that it's becoming very obvious that, that we are one people, one planet. And the, there's no way of separating the destiny of a lucky few from the, the destiny of the billions of less lucky ones. So if we learn that lesson deeply, that would be very important. Can you remember at the time in your life where you experienced something uh, similar? Oh. Um, I remember various times in my life in which I experienced uh, strong personal upheavals, 
But I don't think I remember any time in my life with a collective happening of this magnitude and, and, and mainly of this magnitude on a world scale. It's not just uh, one country or just Europe or, yeah. So it's quite unique in that respect. Yes, absolutely. So if I would ask you, very simple, um, who are we and what is life, what would you answer? <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> I think um, we are the eyes of the universe looking at itself, of the universe experiencing itself through life through all forms of life, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really interesting. So take me to your childhood. You were born in Lake Como, Italy, during the Second World War. And then you grew up in Milan. So how did the first years of your life shaped you? I think, I think my, my early childhood in, in Como, in Blavia, which is near Como, on the lake, uh, shaped me quite deeply there were, it was like a, there was a lot of a lot of tension around me and and fear and danger and uh i know that i still carry some of it but it also shaped me in terms of of the love for nature it's like i, I grew up in a in a big garden and uh quite alone but with lots of company in the trees and bushes and grass and creatures. <laughs> my mother and, my, well, my father had to, had to flee because uh, he was a Jew. And when, when Germans uh, took over Italy, uh, so, well, he had, he had a difficult time before as a Jew uh, with the fascists. But when, when Germans came over, uh, then it became really, really, really bad and really dangerous. So he managed to flee across the mountains into Switzerland. Uh, he and my mother were not officially married, but for my mother was a time of great uh, anxiety and, and fear, the war. And they, they had created an a hiding place in the garden where they would put me in case the SS would be at the door. I mean, it was terrible, but for me, in playing in my garden, <laughs> uh, it was a good time. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. So after the war, everything changed. Like we went uh, to Milan, and I went to. I started going to school, and I've I've been told that on my second day to school when they told me okay we now go to school I, I responded with something like but we've done that already yesterday <laughs> but, but unfortunately there were many many tomorrows waiting for me in that line <laughs> yeah so then moving to Milan and going to school was a new a new world I can imagine because now you're in the city buildings all around you no nature anymore that must be yeah. really difficult yeah. right yeah and and life kind of organized and regulated by times and duties and yeah <laughs> it was different you went to school there and also to university yes. yeah. right you studied physics in milan yes. yeah my passion was philosophy but um My father, who was more like a scientifically minded person, kind of shifted me towards a more scientific discipline. And I'm actually happy uh, in the end that I studied that because I kept anyway uh, reading philosophy all my life. And uh, um, But at the same time, I had also this... Um, physics perspective on reality. It would have been much more difficult to, to acquire them both if I had not studied physics. So you were reunited with your father after the war? Yes, he came back and we moved to Milan. 
how did this interest for um, philosophy arose? I think it arose when I was about 14 or 15, was a way to moving away or moving beyond my Catholic education because, uh, okay, my father was a Jew, but he was an, an atheist, atheist, and uh, my mother was Catholic and a believer, so we were raised Catholic. But a big turning point for me was um, realizing that all this heavy emphasis on sin and, and suffering, uh, that that was just a story. And there were many different ways of looking at the world. And that opened up like another dimension of reality. That's when my passion for philosophy developed. Yeah, I can imagine it gave you maybe perspective into different worlds. Yes. And age 14, 15 is such a crucial age. And then you realize not everything is true, what my parents said. Right, right. Yes. So, but you chose physics. And were you as passionate um, in physics as you were with philosophy? Yes, I was, but it went up and down. There were like various, um, at the same time, I was growing up and living all the trouble of adolescence. But at the end, at the end of, of my study at, in Milan, I met quantum physics. And that really uh, sparked uh, made my flame alive for physics uh, because it, uh, it had implications about what is reality, who we are, what's, the, what's this universe we are in. It had, and it, it had a, a very different perspective on reality than the one our daily transactions relies on. Things can be more complex than, than we usually look at them. For me, as someone who never experienced anything with quantum physics, um, how would you describe it to okay, me? Let me, let, let me try. Um, things are not necessarily one way or another. They can be one way and another at the same time. So it's like, it's as if like many versions of the world exist simultaneously. And it's It's only our look, our gaze that selects a reality. So reality is much more mysterious than we usually think of it in terms of like concrete objects. Even our body is like a concrete object in space and time. According to quantum physics, there are no real objects. They are a construct, a way of making sense of, of the world which works quite well in our daily, ordinary reality, but it's not how things are ultimately. So that's, well, that's a short summary. Fascinating. I can imagine why you got into the field of quantum physics. It must be mind-blowing at a young age to yes. get offered like a new, totally new world perspective. Right. Thank you for sharing that. That's fascinating. And we're planning to have a whole episode about quantum physics where <laughs> okay. we can right. we'll play with that. <laughs> yeah, where we can go deeper into that. But it must be uh, must have been fascinating um, to get into the field of quantum physics. At what stadium was quantum physics at the time you discovered it? The the re the big revolution of quantum physics is in the late 1920s and 1930. At the time I started studying it, uh, in the 60s, basically, the, the, the overall shape of the theory was, was quite well defined, although since then we have discovered many, many new things, and, and it keeps evolving. But some, some basic questions about really the foundations of the theory especially questions that have to do with the process of observation, with describing what happens when we experience something, when we see something, um, and when we see something on the micro level, on the level of quantum physics. 
In that sense, quantum physics, although it's a super powerful theory which works fantastically well at many levels, has kind of a black hole in it, um, has a has an unsolved problem, which is the description of the process of observation. So uh, quite uh, unlike uh, old classical theories, uh, quantum physics needs interpretation. It's not obvious what the things we're talking about are, what the terms we use mean. Um, and that's an open, an open issue, like uh, almost 100 years from the beginning of quantum physics, people still discuss on how to interpret it, which makes it even more fascinating. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, I, when I started studying it, uh, it was at that stage, and my, my thesis, my graduation thesis, was on the interpretation of quantum physics, which was like fascinating problem for me. And, kept fascinating me. It still fascinates me nowadays. And it's still open. That's very, very interesting because you also have to apply the human aspects into it, into interpretation, right? Right. The the big question is actually like what's the role of of the subject, of the experimenter? What what did you find out? <laughs> <laughs> Well, when my work at the time was like contributing to one uh, of the of the interpretations of quantum physics, which was at the time at the time it was called the Milan Milan School. Because a few of my teacher and uh, were involved in in creating it. Uh, so my my contribution was uh, like fixing one of these uh, interpretation theories in, in, in some important details, and, which was a passionate work for me. I really enjoyed that part. I mean, that sounds like a small role, but I think in the field of quantum physics, it was um, like a milestone, what do you think? At least in this, in this line of interpretation, which later developed very much, and is now one of the most uh, widely accepted interpretation. There's not one interpretation which is accepted by everybody. <laughs> that we're not there yet. <laughs> and then uh, I worked in, in the university in Milan for two or three years. And then at some point I became restless and needed to explore a bit more of the world. And then I moved to the States. And how was it to go to, to the U.S., to a whole new world? It was a great discovery. Well, I, one way to summarize the, the, the first impact that the States had on me uh, is in terms of, like, people from in Europe in the last few centuries have gone through, like, many, many upheavals, many forms of suffering, and but like the way they responded to it, there's two different ways. Like some people stayed and some people left. Some people got on a ship and went across the ocean to uh, start something new. And some of that spirit, I felt, was still there. The, these were the people who said, fuck it. I'm going to start from scratch. Uh, while we Europeans kind of stood our ground and struggled, suffered, conquered some, lost some, but staying in the old. So it was, in that way, it was like a, a great sense of freedom. And it was a, a very special time also. It's like yeah, especially on the West Coast in California where I was. Um, it was a time like with a great sense of like, we can change the world. And in, in those years and, and there, uh, there was such a, a bubbling up of creativity. And like all 
old ways, dogmas, uh, rules were like falling away. Part of it was like the flower power uh, revolution. Uh, part was like uh, psychedelics. Uh, part was the discovery of spirituality for many, many of us. It was, it was the sense that we're not bound to the world we've grown up in. We can create a, a different world. At the same time, yeah, the, the Vietnam War was going on, so this was also uh, closely related with the uh, resistance to the war. With, uh, so many, many forms of creativity. Also rediscovering the culture of the Native American. The, the Native American culture was a, a strong inspiration for many, many of us. In fact, uh, for a little more than one year, I, I lived in a teepee, one of those Indian tents that I had made myself with the help of a friend who lived in a nearby teepee. This while I was also working in the university and doing my PhD. So, yeah, maybe you can take us into these two worlds. So that a lot of different vibes and energy were going around in the U.S. at that time, like the yeah. post-war uh, spirit that was around, but also this spiritual awakening, um, flower power movement. So, and you came from Milan, <laughs> so the uh, yeah European European Catholic culture. Um, how did you find your place in the U.S.? Or what were the questions that you had in mind? Well, I, I think it was quite easy to find my place because. I was thirsty for the same type of value, ways of being, and uh, ways of, to understand life and reality. And I felt very welcome. I felt like at home, um, reuniting with my people. And, and I think that was for many people, uh, there was a sense of coming home, not, not in the And you were a student in the university. I was a graduate student, yes. Student, okay. So my PhD. And you had this university life, and then this also this life that happens next to a university. So how did this coexisted? Uh, it it co I think it coexisted in a way which is typical of that time. I, I don't know whether it could coexist nowadays, but uh, there was there was kind of a wind of renewal blowing through also the university. For example, like when I was living in the teepee, um, I, my clothes were like African. I smelled like fire and wood, but this was okay, even in the university, like no one would... Uh, Uh, and question like how you dress or there was a sense of creativity and change everywhere. Together with, at the same time, in the physics department, especially during the war, there was like work going on to support the military. So it's a complex situation. There's various <laughs> facets to it. But certainly like a very important facet was this sense of uh, we can change the world. Because on, on the one hand, there this group of people who are against the war and fighting against it. Um, and on the other side, you maybe have to contribute to supporting it. That's right. That's, that was part of, of my personal crisis with the, the university, with academia. That it's like, uh, well, it has many sides, but one side is like people kept this deep metaphysical longing kind of locked in in the on the blackboard but not in their life <laughs> in 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 daily life let's say career competition and all the <laughs> all the trouble of human uh, cohabitation uh, were quite predominant while at the same time we were studying like how the ultimate nature of things is not 
that. <laughs> it's not that solid apparent reality you, you see, which is kind of, it's such a paradox. But so ev eventually, I couldn't go on with that. I had to let go of the university. I can imagine that this is a, a, a situation many people find themselves in when they are on their path of going into yeah. the spiritual life, that they are on a transition, but the world around us stays the same and it feels very uncomfortable in the daily life, maybe. Yes, absolutely. The way the way I realized that was when I when I went back to Milan after California, um, I would I would uh, I had an office in the physics department. I would go back to my office and fall asleep, and then I would say, "Okay, well, tomorrow will be better," <laughs> and the day after I would fall asleep, <laughs> and then I would fall asleep. <laughs> And at some point, I realized this is this is not me. It's no longer for me. During your time at the in the University of California at Santa Barbara, you were involved in discovering the first black hole. How how was that like? And how would you describe your contribution to it? Well, um, for one thing, it, like it was a very rich time in so many ways because, like my. My life outside of the university was this big adventure. Uh, but also, at, at the university, the stuff we were working on was fascinating, was absolutely mind-blowing. So when the, this discovery of the first black hole uh, was like an X-ray source in the constellation of Cygnus, the swan. Um, that people could not make sense in terms of any other theoretical frame and had to be necessarily either a neutron star or a black hole. The neutron star is, a black hole is kind of like the final stage of the collapse of a star. When a star has burned all its thermonuclear fuel, it collapses and collapses and collapses. The, ultimate point of this collapse is a black hole in which like matter becomes so uh, condensed, so densely packed that um, it changes the, the, the space of uh, the, the shape of space and time and creates an area out of which nothing can come where things can only go in, but nothing can go out. One way to describe it in terms of gravitation would be gravity is so strong that it pulls back in even light. And in terms of space-time, it's like an extreme bending of the shape of space and time. So the people saw this object in the sky, they, were, they saw it, they, they uh, detected X-rays coming from it. From the data astronomically collected, uh, it was clear that this could only be a, um, either a neutron star or a black hole. A neutron star is a extremely dense star, but the black hole is the even more, it's like the ultimate <laughs> contraction of space and time. Uh, so the work that Jim Hartle was my teacher and myself did it together was about distinguishing this new object from a neutron star. So we worked on like what was the maximum possible mass of a neutron star. And it turned out like the, this, Cygnus X1, this X-ray source, uh, was more massive than that. So it had to be a, a black hole. And since then, many black holes have been discovered. Like it, uh, we're even convinced that at the core of, of each galaxy, there's most likely a huge black hole. 
at the core of our galaxy, there is one. But at that time, it was the first one. But at that time, it was the first one. The first one with like some strong evidence that that these objects existed, because up to that point, they were just like a mathematical consequence of Einstein's equations. But whether they were really there, um, it wasn't clear up to that point. So I can imagine only a few people will have sensed this feeling that you have felt when you could confirm it. How was that like? It was wonderful and exciting, uh, especially the, the theoretical part of this work. Because then it needed uh, actual calculations to, to clinch the identification strongly, uh, which took much longer than the, than the theory. And it was like two or three years of doing computer calculations. And computers at the time were quite different from the ones we know like the, the computer of the University of California at Santa Barbara occupied the whole building. It was a privilege because it was, at the time, one of the most powerful computers in existence. So you made this uh, remarkable achievement together with the team. You worked on the theoretical part on this computer. Yes. And at the same time, there's a completely different worlds outside and um, at one point you chose to drop out of university or leave the academic path yes yes that was uh, after I went back to Italy went back to Milan and since that my energy was no longer uh, behind that work and especially was uh, no longer so focused in the mind. I needed a more experiential, more physical, more in touch with nature and with reality. And actually One, one dream of many of us at the time was a kind of back to nature dream uh, and in, in terms of like community living, um, farming, living a simple life. So that was the next stage. I got together with some friends and we, we started a commune in Tuscany. Take us through this time. <laughs> That was also for many of us uh, a time of discovery of the East. After I left university, I traveled to India, went to exploring various spiritual traditions. And what were those big questions you were asking yourself and, and the world? I think I think the the big question was um, how to how to live how to live the understanding in terms of mental intellectual understanding. Uh, I had gone very very far, but from that to embodying it and living it moment to moment in your life there's a big distance. So for me, that started, the quest was how to embody wisdom and knowledge, how to live it, because that's what really matters. And not just reading it into the old ancient books, but bringing it to the daily life. Right, yes, yeah. That was the point. So, and then you went on a journey. 
Where where did you go? What did you find? What did you experience? The the um, the strong meeting of those years has been Osho. Um, Osho was was called at that time Bhagwan, which means God in Sanskrit. He he had like gathered around him uh, a community of seekers. And was again like another dream of changing the world, and and there was much learning in that process for me. Also learning um, to accept guidance, which was not so easy for me. <laughs> I'm rather rebellious <laughs> character, but there was great learning into in that experience, which lasted. Uh, Eight years, seven, eight years, and then I felt I had to like let go also of Oshun. Where did you meet him? I met him in Pune. That's a city like a little bit east of Bombay, in central India. Um, he had a an ashram in Pune. Ashram is the term for a spiritual school. Later on, he. Left had had some. He was he was also a rebel, definitely Osho, and always were in trouble. Was in trouble with the, the power structures around him. So he was in trouble with India and left and went to Oregon. The whole commune like was transported to Oregon, uh, where things got a bit messy in time, and. Uh, Eventually, Osho went back to India and died there in 91. Have you been in Oregon as well? Yes, I was in Oregon as well, yeah. Which was uh, uh, a very interesting situation. There's, there's a documentary. Have you seen the documentary? What was I've seen it? it on Netflix, yeah. It's, it's called Wild Country. Uh, yes, yes, wild, wild country, yeah. Wild, wild country, yeah. yeah. I have known Osho before and I've read some books of him and then I watched oh, a documentary. Yes, and my parents are big Osho fans and right. kind of grew up with some of the meditations. Um, as having seen the documentary, it's really fascinating that you have been there, that you have yeah. lived there. And there's so many questions. I think we need a whole podcast interview about this. <laughs> But uh, first question, um, it's not that easy to get around Osho. So what was your first encounter going to India and going to Pune? And can you go there a bit deeper of how you yeah, met him? Yeah. I think, I think how, how Osho caught me is through, through his people. And that's what he said. He, he, he often said that. He said, like, my message is not my words. And it's not my books. It's my people. And that's true. I mean, there was, there was an energy around Osho of, I don't know, like intense happiness. An intense creativity. So it was very special. When I arrived, it was it was already quite big the situation in Pune, end of the 70s, but not so big that you couldn't meet him in person. Yeah, maybe it should have stayed there. <laughs> maybe it should have stayed there. And <laughs> but what, we went through the experience that we needed to go through. <laughs> that's absolutely true. Um, and what was it like the early beginnings or short? What With what questions did you go there? What did you learn there? What are you taking from, from this time? Well, what I, what I take particularly from that time is um, being in touch with emotion, uh, embodying experience. And so it's like I was, I was very mental and very intellectual at the time. And the whole experience with Osho was 
much more like being in the body, feeling, experiencing. And David is my Osho name. So Osho gave you that name. It means peace. It's like it comes from Shanti, Sanskrit for peace. And I've always been curious why Shantena and not Shanti. What's the difference? And I asked my Indian friends, and they said, Shanti, Shantena? Same, same, but different. <laughs> okay. So that was the answer. It's actually not a difference. Okay. Peace. But that's beautiful. Why do you think he gave that name to you? Because he, he saw how troubled I am. <laughs> and that you need Shantina. Yeah. Beautiful. Everything was also very Indian at the time. Later, it lost that character with all, all the fascinating and, uh, uh, and, and stupid also things that belong to it, like the whole mixture. Yeah. Yeah, it must be a, a crazy, a crazy time. <laughs> From one crazy time to another. Yeah, 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 definitely. It's, it's incredible. I, I have uh, listened to an interview. You were talking about Mexico and the experience, oh, yeah. how Mexico shaped you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's before. That was when I was living in California. I would sometimes, check when I would have holidays from the university, I would drive down to Mexico. And during one of these trips, it was like, was a very strong spiritual experience. Very difficult at the beginning, very painful, but then like very luminous. And I, I see it as like the beginning of my journey, really, of my spiritual journey. Because up, up to that time, um, I thought of myself as Marxist, materialist, scientific and the Mexico experience kind of shook up their own identity. What had the strongest impact was people, people who were, were living in such a simple way, like where life and death are so close. I remember on one of those journeys, traveling on a bus, in which in the, in the back of the bus, Uh, had a coffin, a small coffin for a child. You would never see in the West like a coffin traveling with you on a bus. But in Mexico, this was quite normal. Beside like a few goats and sheep and <laughs> whatever else would travel with you. Uh, so it's, it was the contact with the, with the people that shook up my identity. And at first made me feel like I was going crazy. Because it was so different? Yeah. Because it was so different. And, and suddenly it's like, I couldn't stand myself anymore. I couldn't stand my defenses, my protection. I couldn't stand like being there with my car, my camera, taking pictures of everything. Um, like that detached observer, I suddenly couldn't stand him. And then this, so this lasted three days or something like that. Then I got sick. I got like very high fever. And was kind of in between life and death for a bit. And then turned around completely into an experience of complete bliss. At the time, I didn't have any notion of spiritual journey. Okay. It's this experience that started. It all started there. Well, let me give you a little bit of context. This kind of, this whole experience started on the mountains as we were driving towards Puerto Angel. And it started with uh, picking up a, hitch a hitchhiker, which was already something like completely absurd, like in this desert place on the mountains, 
meeting one along on the track that hitchhiking. Uh, but we picked him up and uh, um, he, he was a, a drug dealer who was going to pick up a, a load of marijuana to sell it in Mexico City. Um, so he said, like, would you like to come with me to this little farm? And we went to the little farm. Um, the people were very simple, very poor peasants of the mountains and very loving. They, they offered us a meal and uh, we stayed with them that whole day. Uh, and they were the first one to touch my heart in that journey. Um, we were eating this kind of greasy scraps of meat, uh, which <laughs> I would have found horrible in any other situation, but it seemed, it seemed wonderful <laughs> there. Um, so we, we spent the day with them, and then we got on our way. Uh, and on the way, we met um, a truck that had fallen off the road, as is not unusual in Mexico and in third world places. <laughs> anyway. uh, and inside this truck, there was uh, a boy, the driver, and his mother. And the boy was unconscious and, and wounded. So we picked them up and spent the rest of the night looking for help, looking for medical attention. And I'm not going to go into the whole details of that absurd night, but it was not easy to find, to find medical assistance. It was like crazy world. At some point we went through like a, a wedding party in which everybody was completely drunk. <laughs> And, and men started like making passes at the mother of the child, uh, the mother of the boy. Well, all kinds of like stories. <laughs> like, Sounds like uh, a movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good so. Mexico stories. <laughs> so, so that night was like kind of shaking, shaking up all my coordinates. No, <laughs> the. It was not the kind of events that would daily happen in my life, quite. But so, and it started started making, kind of making very obvious the structures of my ego, the structures of my defenses. In in what way did your ego reflect to that situation? That that these people were like so so much in touch, so much dealing with life and death, with like the basics of life. And I felt like so removed from that, kind of like a, a, a witness or a, an observer while they were living these like strong experiences. What were the emotions that coming up or the thoughts that were coming up? It was like, it was like I don't want to be myself. I cannot stand this person. Yeah, I don't know how else to describe it. It's like really like a fighting with myself. And then suddenly this was completely gone. And everything was completely luminous. And it was kind of right as it was with all the life and death and everything mixed in. And came this from the inside or something happened from the outside? No, this came from the inside. It was completely a surprise. It's like wake up one morning and, and the world was shining. But at the same time, like I realized that things would never be the same again. That this experience had changed it all. Okay, wow. But I think it was written in one of Osho's uh, books. It was like um, this cartasis. I just know, yeah, I think it's also the English word that no wisdom can appear without the cartasis. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And do you think it, this was yours? I think so. I think, I think that was, 
I didn't I didn't understand it fully at the time because I, I kind of like I didn't have the coordinates or the language for it. But uh, yeah, it was the beginning. Okay, so everything with your university and um, your discoveries and the time in India that happened afterwards. Yes, that's right. Okay. Yeah. So, and how did that change your daily life at university back home? In a way, it was a parallel to what was happening in in my studies in my physics because it was like realizing realities so much richer than than we normally assume it to be. So I started I started meditating, I started practicing yoga, I started reading Buddhism. My life pretty much went on like before, but inside there was this thirst. So interesting. So you told already and then you decided to completely leave that that uh, academic life behind you. My colleagues thought I was crazy. Because they said, like, you have almost no obligation in the in the university. Why do you want to give it up? But I knew that I needed I needed to take the jump, not pretend that everything was okay. And build up a commune in Tuscany. How did this happen? Well, it happened because like many people were feeling had this shared the same feeling of back to back to a simpler life back to nature and be be together with others who are also seeking meditating together working together having fun together it's like there was like a dream taking shape around those ideas and then from there i went to india and met osho and the people involved in this type of experiment, most of them eventually became Osho sannyasins. And, and the commune be eventually became an Osho commune, which okay. still exists. Oh, okay. So yeah. to, together with this tribe, you went to India? With some of them, yeah. In yeah. Incredible. And what really interests me is in, in what kind of ancient wisdom traditions did you find your answers? I think I always stayed open to various traditions. Maybe the one that I've explored most is Buddhism. And another important figure for me was uh, um, a Tibetan Lama named Lama Yeshe. He was a teacher at, uh, in the 70s had a wonderful, like, childlike smile and, and a warmth and a lightness in the way he would, like, transmit the message of Buddhism. So I was, I was very attracted to him. At some point, was, like, kind of in between, like, him and Bhagwan and Osho. But eventually, I went with Osho. And I also read in your biography that once you discovered that you are a Taoist <laughs> your whole yeah. life. So yeah. I am absolutely not familiar with Taoism. Where does it come from and where did you get this experience from? Um, Taoism is like, in my, in my feeling and in my imagination, a non-religion doesn't doesn't have any fixed ideas, like no notion of enlightenment, no goal that you should aspire to. There's, and they have a notion they call like non-doing, but non-doing does not mean literally doing nothing, but it means like doing from such a detached space that you don't interfere. You tune into where the energy flow wants to carry you and flow with it. Sounds beautiful. Yeah. And my favorite book uh, has always been the Tao Te Ching, the book of Tao and its virtue. Virtue or its power can be translated in various ways. But that's a book that I have translated and worked with. So that's one thing. Another thing is the I Ching. The I Ching is, a, is an old um, 
oracular book. It was used to 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 divine the future, but in in the way I use it, in the way let's say modern use, it can be used as a book of introspection. The I Ching. Um, yeah. So how does it work? The traditional one uses the stalk of a plant called yarrow or Achillea millefolium. You cut them and make a bunch of 50 sticks and handle them in a certain way, a little bit complicated, but you don't need to go into the details. But that points to a text in the book, depending what you've got. Yeah, the book consists of 64 hexagram, which is like figures made of six lines uh, with text attached to it. And these texts have a shamanic origin. The, the origin of the book is like in the divination with fire that is shamans practiced. And then in a state of trance would like give uh, sentences. And these shamanic sentences are like kind of archetypal situation, ty types of energy that are involved in a, in a given situation. And you can use it as a way to reflect uh, both on a situation outside and on your own attitude and your, how you're handling it, how you respond to it. So it's like these texts, which are mostly images, kind of invite you to work with a different side of the brain. It's more like the, your intuition, and it's like it, it calls to the surface knowledge which is there, but you're not aware that it's there. So the work with the I Ching is fascinating because you ask a question. It's like the book is like a book to have a dialogue with. So it starts by asking a question. For example, what about this situation that's happening in my life right now? Then you do your sticks, your consultation, and let that guide you, or let that illuminate the situation for you. That's the work with the Ching. I usually do it only when there's a question which I really don't know how to handle, or, it's, or there's two options that are equally strong, or, But there's some people who use it every day. I can imagine you, you could use it every day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really interesting. And we are here because you're a senior advisor at the Conscious Consulting Group. Um, so I want to yeah, talk with you a bit about your advisory and how do you implement your experience in your advisory and how does your work with leaders look like? Well, I'm... I'm a senior advisor. That's correct because I'm old. <laughs> But I'm not so senior as an advisor, actually. Um, the, closest, the closest I've worked with it is, on the one hand, um, I trained as a counselor, and I do this work with the I Ching, which I've also used to deal with business situation, and especially... Uh, reflecting on interpersonal situation of people working together. It can bring out aspects of the dynamics between people, which is very useful to bring to the surface and, and work with. So in that respect, the I Ching is a powerful tool. Very fascinating. I'm, I'm eager to learn more about it from you. <laughs> Okay, okay. And, <laughs> so, and the last and final question um, that I will ask everyone who is talking to me on this podcast um, is, so from your perspective, what is the secret to a good life? <laughs> I think it's following your heart. Yeah, when you follow your heart, whatever happens, be it suffering or joy it's a good life okay Shantina thank you so much for taking the time thank you very much yeah. it's been lovely it was, yeah it was a pleasure to talk to you yeah. and not the last time <laughs>
Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Conscious Consulting Podcast. If you want to dive deeper into the field of conscious consulting and become a part of our community, visit our website ccg-group.eu and subscribe to our newsletter so we can stay connected. You will find all the links in the show notes. We look forward to having you on board.